Leah Hager-Cohen is the author of four nonfiction books, Train Go Sorry, Inside a Deaf World, Glass Paper Beans, Revelations on the Nature and Value of Ordinary Things, The Stuff of Dreams, Behind the Scenes of an American Community Theater, and Without Apology, Girls, Women, and the Desire to Fight. Her novels are Heat Lightning, Heart, You Bully, You Punk, House Lights, and then last year, The Grief of Others. Four of her books have been named Notable Books of the Year by the New York Times, and The Grief of Others is a year-end book list pick by the New York Times, The Washington Post, The San Francisco Chronicle, among others. The novel has also been long listed for the British Orange Prize, which celebrates, quote, excellent originality and accessibility in women's writing from throughout the world, end quote. The New York Times Book Review featured The Grief of Others as its cover review, and the reviewer noted Leah Hager-Cohen is one of our foremost chroniclers of the mundane complexities, nuanced tragedies, and unexpected tendernesses of human connection. The Grief of Others is her best work yet. Uh, Leah Hager-Cohen frequently reviews books for the New York Times Book Review and writes the blog Love as a Found Object, and her latest post is The Dreariest Art or Why I Review Books. <laughs> so please welcome Leah Hager Cohen. Thank you very much, Marilyn and Carol, and thank you everyone for coming. So hello. I, um, I wanted to talk with you a little bit about where I was in my head during the writing of The Grief of Others. Um, and, and let me start by reminding you, perhaps, of a book that was published last spring by David Orr, the poetry editor at the New York Times. Uh, the book was subtitled A Guide to Modern Poetry. I don't know if this rings any bells, but does anyone remember the title of the book? <laughs> Beautiful and Useless, A Guide to Modern Poetry. And I heard um, David Orr being interviewed after the book came out. And the interviewer was asking him about the title, and, and he conceded maybe he had been unduly harsh. Maybe he should have called the book beautiful and pointless, he said. Um, but I, it got me thinking about the relationship between art and utility. And I think there could be a very interesting argument to be had about why it's a good idea to unhook art from being useful. But I also think there's a very good and interesting argument to be had um, around why art should be useful. And this is, this is what I was thinking about a lot actively while I was, not even while I was writing The Grief of Others, because that sounds like I was sort of steering the ship and, and when these thoughts were coming to me, it was during a period of time when I was trying to respond to what this new novel would teach me during the writing process. Um, and I was, it became important to me to figure out in what way fiction might be morally useful, um, in which way fiction might provide some kind of service to us as human beings. Um, I'm a little embarrassed to say that it was 
only during this time in my life, um, which is to say late, <laughs> that I read Middlemarch um, <clears throat> and came across the beautiful line of George Eliot's, um, our good depends on the quality and breadth of our emotion. And for me, that became an important clue as to how art, how fiction um, could be morally useful to the extent that when we read fiction, um, when we read good fiction, we're being asked to fathom the unfathomable. We're being asked to extend our capacity to empathize with those that we might be predisposed to think are not like us, right? To, to understand something about the other, to feel something in kinship with the other. That's what good fiction does for me anyway. And I should say that as, as this idea evolved around you know, what, what does moral fiction look like, um, I consider this to be my personal, highly idiosyncratic definition of moral fiction. Um, and so what emerged for me were two criteria. And the first was just that, that moral fiction is necessarily morally complex fiction, and that it extends our capacity as readers to feel, to empathize, and to fathom otherness, to fathom the alien. And that's the part of moral fiction that I would argue you can see. You can see in the product, right? When you're reading it, it's, e it's either there or it's not. Again, while I was in this process of sort of, you know, blindly, stumblingly, murkily finding my way through what would become the grief of others, I stumbled upon the, the second um, important component of moral fiction. And that's the invisible part. Um, I don't think it would be apparent to a reader necessarily because it's part of the process, not the product. And um, so, so to illustrate um, how, how I arrived at this second part of the definition, um, I wanted to tell you about um, a character who came into the book early on, a very minor character, and um, if I may read just a paragraph or two to give you a taste of this character. I'm sorry, you did not receive this bit in advance, but it's very short. It's, it's an interpreter's nightmare to have to interpret when someone's reading and you don't even know what, what the text is. It's awful. So I, I realize I'm not giving you any information. I'm just going to read you a paragraph. John. He set his teeth. He was getting used to hearing his name pronounced like that in husky tones, dove gray with pity. I just heard. And I'm skipping ahead a little bit so we can just stay with this character. I just want to give you a close-up glimpse of her. John and his wife have recently lost a baby. Um, the baby was born and died 57 hours later. And this is his colleague uh, seeing him for the first time after she's heard. Her name is Madeline, and, and here's Madeline for you. Madeline had just returned from a conference in Denver, 
and she was standing on the threshold of the scene shop, one hand clutching the door frame, the other having lit upon her artfully arranged décolleté blouse. Madeline Berkowitz, associate professor of costume design, a perfectly respectable teacher and scholar who unfortunately undermined her own authority and credibility by dressing on all occasions like a vamp. From the feet up at this moment, ankle boots, patterned hose, a rust potassois miniskirt whose hue matched her mane of hair, a black blouse with plunging neckline and a heavy amber pendant nestled just at the point of her cleavage. <coughs> at times her appearance provided a not unpleasant diversion or even comic relief, but right now, coupled with her desire to express pathetic condolences, it was the last thing John wanted to deal with. John, she said, again, making his name somehow two syllables. How are you? So I'm ashamed to read this part of the book to you, although you can see I'm not so ashamed that I excised it from the final text. It's still in there. Um, but I think you can get a sense of how I was having fun with Madeline at the expense of Madeline. And that's also how she functioned in the text at this point for John, so John is a main character in the book, and to him, she's sort of the butt of a joke. You know, she's his colleague who he and his other colleagues sometimes ridicule. And I thought, okay, it's sort of fun, it's sort of funny, it's, it's you know, I marched her on, she served <clears throat> her small purpose, and now I march her off stage again, and <clears throat> we probably won't hear from or see her again. Months and months and months later in the writing process, lo and behold, I realized Madeline did need to come back into the story. There was a, a plot function that she would serve. But more than that, what kind of you know hit me over the head like a bottle in a slapstick routine was how small-minded I had been, how small-hearted I had been in my initial not even just treatment of her, but my perception of her, right? I had seen her in the, in the smallest possible way. And this diminished me as the author. It diminished John as the character I have regarding her. Um, and of course, it, it diminished and did an injustice to her. And yes, I know I'm talking about fictional people, but nevertheless, right? So much later in the book, she comes on, she serves this other plot need. But more than that, it became a chance for John to see how he had always perceived her from the smallest part of his soul. And it became a chance for John, the character of John, to grow. And of course, it became a chance for me, the writer, to grow. And so this is what I would call the hidden um, criterion, you know, if, if we've got sort of two requirements according to my idiosyncratic definition of moral fiction. And the hidden one is that it has to be that which fosters spiritual growth on the part of the writer. And another way of saying that is I can't be certain of my certainties and then stick to those certainties throughout the writing process. I have to be open to being changed by the book, by the story. I have to be open to growing, too. So that's my little speech, and, um, and I have a, 
a short-ish scene to read for you because I can't just leave it at having read you that, you know, my most sort of humiliating <laughs> excerpt from the book. Um, so this scene I will set up for you briefly. It concerns John again and his wife, Ricky, eight years before uh, the main chronology of the book begins, eight years before the loss of this baby. And this is remembering back to an idyllic summer vacation that they took with their two very small children and with a teenage girl named Jess, who is John's daughter from a relationship he had before his marriage. And for 15 years, he had no relationship <coughs> with this girl. And when Jess turns 15, she decides she wants to be in touch with her biological father. And she gets in touch with John. And John and Ricky together decide to invite her on their two-week family vacation camping in the Adirondacks. In the middle of their first night at the lake, John gets sick, throwing up on the flat stone just outside the cabin door, which is as far as he gets before being overcome. Paul and Biscuit do not wake. Jess does, and calls softly from her sleeping bag, what's the matter, should I do something? But Ricky, having followed him out, replies in a low voice through the screen door, no, it's all right, go back to sleep. Ricky has never known John to vomit, not in all the years they have been together. She would like to stand behind him and hold his forehead, as she would if he were one of the children as he has done for her on many occasions during her pregnancies. But he is too tall, even crouched over. She cannot both stand clear of the vomit and reach his brow. Poor John, she murmurs instead, between her husband's heaves. She'd been angry with him when they'd gone to bed and cannot help feeling a little glad that he has gotten sick. Not because she is still angry, but because it makes him helpless makes him hers and draws forth her desire to forgive him. She'd been angry because of the way he treated her all day. And I'm going to skip a little bit here, but it runs through their day and this feeling of tension that she sensed in him um, and ways in which he snapped at her. He did begin to lighten up after they had finally arrived at the cabin. But by then, Ricky was too hurt to forgive him easily. They'd made supper and washed the dishes and taken the kids down to the dock to brush their teeth in the lake. And all of that they had done side by side. But later, when he climbed into the double sleeping bag beside her, she'd turned away from him. Ricky knows it is a kind of fear that caused his foul temper today. She believes this fear is also what made him throw up. She believes, too, that it is Jess who has brought out the fear not through her actions, but through her existence. But the fear predates Jess. Ricky does not know how she knows this. She has not seen John like this before. But she recognizes what she sees. John is afraid of being revealed in a poor light, afraid of being found unworthy, small. Who in his past has made him feel this way? Ricky does not know. She rests one hand on the small of his back and looks up at the tall night sky. It is starless, black, and rimmed by the silhouettes of treetops that are blacker still. 
They remind her of a stage set, the kind she had as a child. It folded out of an album like a pop-up book and came with its own paper actors and props. Her mother would help her put on little plays at the kitchen table. Sometimes they'd set up a row of tea lights at the foot of the cardboard stage. Her father never took part in the plays except as an audience member, but he loved to tell stories, mostly the same handful of stories over and over again. It was here at Cabruta Lake, some 20 years earlier, that he first told Ricky the story of the rabbi of Nemerov. She'd been lying on the dock well after dark, her head on her mother's lap, her father's corduroy shirt spread across her legs like a blanket, her father sitting beside them. To entertain her, her father retold the I.L. Peretz story, if not higher. It was one of his favorites, and she heard him tell it many times throughout her childhood, but it remains always fastened for her to this place, to the night sky and the tall trees here at Cabruta Lake. Ricky thinks she would like to tell John the story. She tries to recollect the way her father told it. The rabbi of Nemerov always disappears one day a year during the high holidays. On this day, he cannot be found, not at home, not at the synagogue, not at shul. The villagers would always explain this absence by saying the rabbi on this day must ascend to heaven to plead with God on their behalf. But one day, a litvak comes to the village, and he scoffs at this explanation. What's a litvak? young Ricky had interrupted. A scoffer, her father replied. May I please continue? On the eve of the high holidays, just before the Day of Atonement, the Litvak nervously hides under the rabbi's bed. He's determined to, to discover wherever it is the rabbi goes. The next morning, the rabbi rises, dresses in rough clothing, and grabs an ax and a thick rope the Litvak, with fear in his heart, follows the rabbi into the woods. As he watches, the rabbi chops up a tree and ties the wood into a bundle with the rope. He carries the bundle to the shack of a sick old woman and knocks on the door, pretending to be a peasant selling firewood. When the woman protests she hasn't any money, the rabbi says he'll lend it to her. When she says she may never be able to pay him back, he scolds her for having so little faith in God. When she asks who will make the fire for her, she's too sick to get up. He does it himself, reciting as he does the penitential prayers. From this day forth, the Litvak becomes a disciple of the rabbi. From this day forth, whenever he hears someone repeat the rumor that during the high holidays, the rabbi of Nemerov ascends to heaven, the Litvak does not scoff. He only adds quietly, if not higher. Ricky hears these last words as if her father is speaking them now and recalls how his voice had seemed to hang above them for a moment, like the wire of black smoke after you blow out a candle. Why, young Ricky had asked, didn't he just give her the wood? He did, said her father. But he makes it sound like she has to pay him back. Because he knows she won't accept charity. Why did he have to dress like a peasant? Why didn't he just let her know he was the rabbi? Her father turned to her mother. What am I not saying in English? <laughs>
And this is the problem with this story, as well as the real reason she has remembered it now. Ricky cannot recall the story of the rabbi without reinvoking the memory of disappointing her father. This is how it always went with them, he forever offering her something he clearly regarded as a precious gem, she forever failing to grasp the crucial thing about it, always apprehending instead its poorest facet. She knows a thing or two about being seen as small, as wanting. John retches again. Sweet pea, whispers Ricky. His vomit steams on the cold ground. Above them, above the steely black of the pines, the sky's black is soft as a plum. Ricky listens to the tuneless corral of the insects and the faint clues that weightier creatures are awake in the forest. Her breath comes out as a feathery fog, silver in the air before it disappears. Between the trees, Cabruta Lake shows yet another sort of black, slick as obsidian glass. Tomorrow, they will take the canoe from the shed. The need comes over her to make a vow, standing with her husband, her palm on his waist while he is sick at their feet. <coughs> She pledges silently to be the one who will always see in him the large. No matter what, she will be that one. The private nature of her vow, the fact that he is unaware of this new promise, her new obligation, fills her with a kind of solemn awe. Thank you. so much. That was fantastic. All right. Um, Jim Shepard is also here today, right here. Okay. So uh, Jim Shepard is the author of, I think, seven novels. I kept trying to count them all. And four, and four story collections. The novels are Flights, Kiss of the Wolf, Paper Doll, Lights Out in the Reptile House, Project X, which won the Library of Congress Massachusetts Book Award for Fiction and the Alex Award from the American Library Association, Nosferatu, Master of Miniatures. And as I said, Jim Shepard is a short story writer too. His stories have appeared in many magazines, among them Harper's, Esquire, Double Take, The New Yorker, and The Paris Review. His stories have been included in the Best American Short Stories and the Pushcart Prize. The short story collections are Batting for Castro, Love and Hydrogen, Like You'd Understand Anyway, a finalist for the National Book Award and awarded the Story Prize. On the publication last year of his latest collection, You Think That's Bad, the New York Times reviewer remarked, Shepard's taught, high-concept, research-dependent fiction covers a bracing career, long range of hobby horses and obsessions, among them, Nazis, horror movies, aircraft, explorers, high school misfits and their grown-up versions. There are few writers today with more artful gifts for active, authentic description. Please welcome Jim Shepard. Thank you, Marilyn. <clears throat> Here's my plan. <clears throat> I'm going to read oh, about 15 minutes of the beginning of one story and then just stop in order to maximize your displeasure. Um, I'll be skipping stuff. You should imagine the stuff I'm skipping even better than what I'm reading. 
Um, and then I'm going to read a little tiny short short, which is brand new. Um, so the poor interpreter is just going to have to wing it at that point. Um, the uh, story I'm going to read the beginning of is a story called The, Netherland Liv the Netherlands Lives with Water. Um, it's the only story I've ever read that's set in the future. But in keeping with my, uh, the perversity of most of my aesthetic decisions, it's like set 20 minutes in the future. I mean, like a, like a year in the future or something. So none of the pleasures of that kind of fiction show up, essentially. Anyway, this is called The Netherlands Lives with Water. This will take about 50, 10 or 15 minutes. The other thing will be much shorter. A long time ago, a man had a dog that went down to the shoreline every day and howled. When when she returned, the man would look at her blankly. Eventually, the dog got exasperated. Hey, the dog said, there's a shitstorm of biblical proportions headed your way. Please, I'm busy, the man said. Hey, the dog said the next day and told him the same thing. This went on for a week. Finally, the man said, you say that once more, I'm going to take you out to sea and dump you overboard. The next morning, the dog went down to the shoreline again, and the man followed. Hey, the dog told him after a minute. Yeah, the man said. Oh, I think you know, she told him. <laughs> oh, here's another one, Cato says to me. Adam goes to God, why'd you make Eve so beautiful? And God says, so you would love her. And Adam says, well, why'd you make her so stupid? And God says, so she would love you. <laughs> Hank laughs. Well, he thinks it's funny, Cato says. He's 11 years old, I tell her. And very precocious, she reminds me. Hank makes an overly jovial face and holds two thumbs up. Her mother, his mother takes her napkin, wipes some egg from his chin. We met in the same pre-university track. I was a year older, but hadn't passed Dutch. And so I took it again with her. You failed Dutch, she whispered from the seat behind me. She'd seen me gaping at her when I came in. The teacher had already announced that that's what those of us who were older were doing there. It's your own language, she told me later that week. <laughs> she was holding my penis upright so she could run the edge of her lip along the shaft. I felt like I was about to touch the ceiling. You're not very articulate she remarked later, on the subject of the sounds I'd produced. She acted as though I were a spot of sun in an otherwise rainy month. We always met at her house a short bicycle ride away, and her parents seemed to be perpetually asleep or dead. In three months, I saw her father only once from behind. She explained that she'd been raised by depressives who'd made her one of those girls who'd sit on the playground with the tools of happiness all around her and refuse to play. Her last boyfriend had walked out the week before we'd met. His diagnosis had been that she imposed on everyone else the gloom her family had taught her to expect. Do I sadden you, she would ask me late at night before taking me in her mouth. Will you have children with me, I started asking her back. And she was flattered and seemed pleased without being particularly fooled. I've been thinking about how hard it is to pull information out of you she told me one night when we pitched our clothes out from under her comforter. I asked what she wanted to know, and she said that was the kind of thing she was talking about.
While she was speaking, I watched her front teeth glazed from our kissing. When she had a cold and her nose was blocked up, she looked a little dazed in profile. I ask you a question and you ask another one, she complained. If I ask what your old girlfriend was like, you ask what anyone's old girlfriend is like. So ask what you want to ask, I told her. Do you think, she said, that someone like you and someone like me should be together? Because we're so different, I asked. Do you think that someone like you and someone like me should be together, she repeated. Yes, I told her. That's helpful, thanks, she responded. And then she wouldn't see me for a week. When I felt I'd waited long enough, I intercepted her outside her home and asked, was the right answer no? <laughs> and she smiled and kissed me as though hunting up some compensation for diminished expectations. After that, it was as if we'd agreed to give ourselves over to what we had. When I put my mouth on her, her hands would bend back at the wrists, as if miming helplessness. I disappeared for minutes at a time from my classes, envisioning the trance-like way her lips would part after so much kissing. The next time she asked me to tell her something about myself, I had some candidates lined up. She held my hands away from her and tented the comforter, which provided some cooling air. I told her I still remembered how my older sister always replaced her indigo hair bow with an orange one on royal birthdays, and how I followed her everywhere, chanting that she was a pig, which I was always unjustly punished for, how I fed my sister staggeringly complicated lies that went on for weeks and ended in disaster with my parents or teachers, how I slept in her bed the last three nights before she died of the flu epidemic. Her cousins had also died then, Cato told me. If somebody even just mentioned the year 2015, her aunt still went to pieces. She didn't let go of my hands, so I went on. I told her that being an outsider as a little boy, I'd noticed something was screwed up with me, but I couldn't put my finger on what. I probably wasn't as baffled by it as I sounded, but it was still more than I'd ever told anybody else. She'd grown up right off the Bumpias, and I had been way out in Pernice, looking at the Caltex refinery through the haze. The little fishing village was still there then, huddled in the center of the petrochemical sprawl. My sister loved the lights of the complex at night and the fires that went hundreds of feet into the air like solar flares when the waste gas burned off. Kids from other neighborhoods never failed to notice the smell on our skin. The light was that golden sodium vapor light, and my father liked to say it was always Christmas in Pernice. At night, I was able to read with my bedroom lamp off. When we got ready for school in the mornings, the dredging platforms with their twin pillars would disappear up into the fog like Gothic cathedrals. A week after I told her all that, <clears throat> I introduced Cato to Keys. I've never seen him like this, he told her. We were both on track for one of the technology universities, maybe Eindhoven, and he hadn't failed Dutch. Well, I am a pretty amazing woman, she explained to him. Keys and I both went on to study physical geography and got into the water sector. Cato became media liaison for the program director for Rotterdam Climate Proof. We got married after our third international knowledge for climate research conference. 
Keyes asked us recently which anniversary we had coming up. And I said 11th, and Cato said 100th. It didn't take a crystal ball to realize we were in a growth industry. Gravity and thermal measurements by GRACE satellites had already flagged a partial shutdown of the Atlantic circulation system. The World Glacier Monitoring Service, saddled with having to release one glum piece of news after another, had just that year reported that the Pyrenees, Africa, and the Rockies were all glacier-free. The Americans had just confirmed the collapse of the West Antarctic ice sheet. Once-in-a-century floods in England were now occurring every two years. Bangladesh was almost entirely a bay, and the whole area a war zone because of the displacement issues. It's the catastrophe for which the Dutch have been planning for 50 years, or really for as long as we've existed. We had cooperative water management before we had a state. The one created the other. Either we pulled together as a collective or got swept away as individuals. The real old timers had a saying for when things fucked up. Well, the Netherlands lives with water. What they meant was their land flooded twice a day. Bishop Prudentius of Troyes wrote in his annals that in the ninth century, the whole of the country was devoured by the sea. All the settlements disappeared, and the water was higher than the dunes. In the St. Felix flood, North Bevend was completely swept away. In the All Saints flood, the entire coast was inundated between Flanders and Germany. And in 1717, a dike collapse killed 14,000 on Christmas night. You like going on like this, don't you? Cato sometimes asks. I like the way it focuses your attention, I told her once. Do you like the way it scares our son? She demanded in return. Doesn't scare me, Hank told us. Yes, it does scare you, she told him. And your father doesn't seem to register that. For the last few years, when I've announced that the sky is falling, she's answered that our son doesn't need to hear it. And that I always bring it up when there's something else that should be discussed. I always concede her point, but that doesn't get me off the hook. For instance, I'm still waiting to hear how your mother's making out, she complains, during a dinner when we can't tear Hank's attention away from the soccer celebrations. My mother's now at the point that no one can deny is dementia. She's still in the little house on Pollockstraat, even though the Pernice she knew seems to have evaporated around her. Cato finds it unconscionable that I've allowed her to stay there on her own without help. Let me guess, she says, whenever she brings it up. You don't want to talk about it. She doesn't know the half of it. The day after my father's funeral, my mother brought me into their bedroom and showed me the paperwork on what she called their rainy day account, a staggering amount of money. Where had they gotten so much? Your father, she told me, unhelpfully. When I went home that night and Cato asked what was new, I told her about my mother's regime of short walks. At each stage in the transfer of assets, financial advisors or bank officers have asked if my wife's name would be on the account as well. She still has no idea it exists. It means that I now have a secret net worth more than triple my family's. What am I up to? Your guess is as good as mine. As we're undressing one night, Cato asks how I'd rate my recent performance as a husband. 
I don't know, maybe not so good, not so bad, I tell her. She answers that if I were a minister, I'd resign. <laughs> what area are we talking about here, I wonder aloud, in terms of performance? Go to sleep, she tells me, turns off the light. If climate change is a hammer to the Dutch, the head is coming down more or less where we live. Rotterdam sits astride a plain that absorbs the Scheldt, Meuse, and Rhine outflows. And what we're facing is a troika of rising sea level, peak river discharges, and extreme weather events. We've got the jewel of our water defenses, the staggeringly massive water barriers at Measlant and Dordrecht and the rest of the Delta works, ready to shut off the North Sea during the next cataclysmic storm. But what are we to do when that coincides with the peak river discharges? Sea levels are leaping up. Our ground is subsiding. It's raining harder and more often. And our program of managed flooding, make room for the rivers, was overwhelmed long ago. The dunes and dikes at 11 locations from Terhide to West Capel no longer meet what we decided would be the minimum safety standards. And temporary emergency measures are starting to be known to the public as Hans Brinkers. And this winter has been a festival of bad news. Kies' team has measured increased snowmelt in the Alps to go along with prolonged rainfall across northern Europe and steadily increasing wind speeds during gales, all of which lead to the increasingly ominous winter flows, especially in the Rhine. He and I, known around the office as the pessimists, forecasted this winter's discharge from the Rhine at 18,000 cubic meters per second. It's now up to 21. What are those of us in charge of dealing with that supposed to do? A megastorm at this point would swamp the barriers from both sides and inundate Rotterdam and its surroundings, three million people within 24 hours. Which is quite the challenge for someone in media relations. Remember, the Netherlands will always be here, Cato likes to say, when signing off with one of the news agencies. Though probably under three meters of water, she'll add after she hangs up. Before this most recent emergency, my area of expertise had to do with the strength and loading of the water defense structures, especially in terms of the Scheldt estuary. I'd even been lent out to work on the Venice, London, and St. Petersburg surge barriers. But now all of us are back home and thrown into the weak links project, an overeducated fire brigade formed to address new vulnerabilities the minute they emerge. And our faces are turned helplessly to the Alps. There's been a series of cloudbursts on the eastern slopes, and the Germans have long since raised their river dikes to funnel the water right past them and into the Netherlands. Some of that water will be taken up in the soil, some in lakes and ponds and catchment basements, some in polders and farmland that we've set aside for such emergencies, some in water plazas and water gardens and specially designed underground parking garages and reservoirs. The rest will keep moving downriver to Rotterdam and the closed surge barriers. I'm going to stop there with that one. As you might guess, that story works out well. Um, this story, on the other hand, is about really bad news. Um, this story is called Cretan Love Song. And that's spelled A-N, not I-N. You'll be happy to hear. Cretan Love Song.
You ready for this? Imagine you're part of the Minoan civilization, just hanging out with your feet painted face down by the water's edge on the north shore of Crete, circa 1600 BC. Biting flies knit the breeze around your head. Wavelets slap discreetly ashore. When the volcanic island of Thera detonates 70 miles to the north, the concussion, even where you're standing, knocks passing waterfowl out of the air. Oxen are jolted to their knees. Back where Thera used to be, more than 35 cubic miles of dense rock equivalent has been blown out of the water and up into the troposphere. That's all of Manhattan and the bedrock beneath it concussing upward 30,000 feet. It's as if something has convulsed the horizon and churned the bowl of the sky above. What you're looking at, no one in recorded history has ever seen, before or since. Long before the blast column has reached the upper atmosphere, the shock wave coalesces in a grim line that radiates all the way from the outer edge of your field of vision to your little inlet. The oxen, still on their knees, low in terror and struggle to regain their footing. Your boy, your primary responsibility seems to have slipped from your grasp. Everyone just gapes while the surge flashes across the last of the distance, and when it hits, you're knocked flat like the oxen, and the palms above and around you are stripped of their leaves in a roaring turmoil of wind and sand. The woman beside you is on her hands and knees. The infant she'd been holding is face down and crying nearby. The, at the end of a swaddling cloth that apparently unspooled in the impact. One oxen is up and lumbering inland. Off the beach, a dark blue band, like a furrow, races back out to sea. Your boy calls to you through air alive with grit, glittering in the sun, and with one eye open, the view is a little less painful. When the undersea furrow finally aligns with the horizon, it holds steady for a moment. Your boy is still calling. The infant is still crying. Then the horizon line darkens still more and widens. The widening is accompanied by a continuous rolling thunder that seems to emanate from somewhere beyond the curve of the earth. Another oxen has gotten to its feet and bowled past its handler in panic. It's only when you look to the east and the west that you realize the band is widening because it's rising. It's a wave of a size without precedent. At 60 miles away, it already appears an inch tall. Its upper edge is frayed and filigreed in white. Its reverberations are already oscillating through your hands and feet. You have time to run, but unless you're able to cover half the island in the next four minutes, you might as well stay where you are. Your boy finds you since you've done so little to find him. He asks what's happening. He asks what you're going to do. He asks as if the very extent of your love and responsibility carries with it sufficient power to avert even something like this. He reminds you that you have to run, and you understand him to mean that though you won't reach safety, you can reach your home, his mother, 
and your wife. You can, in the interval you have left, make clear with just a moment's embrace and the time to hold her face still and engage her eyes that despite your lassitude and arrogance and petulance and selfishness and pettiness, she's granted you a gift for which you've never adequately expressed your joy. She's buoyed you and nurtured you and weathered your despotism and continued to envision what you still might have become rather than what you are. She's put wings to your feet for the entirety of your life together and with them you run. Your boy mostly keeps pace, clutching at your arm when you begin to pull away. He's the one who got you moving and he's the one receding and you reach back your hand at his cry. The wave behind you is a sonic domain enveloping everything. The road before you is one you've traversed a thousand times. The woman waiting in the courtyard is your best chance to accomplish one more panegyric before the world upheaves and confirms that whatever other self-renovations you may have had planned, your time is gone. Thank you. Oh, thank you both so much. All right, so um, I'm just going to start with a few questions, uh, and I think um, I'll be laying out a little bit of territory so and give a little bit of context to these questions. But I think from the two readings, you'll you really see the the different textures here, and uh, <laughs> so. Um, we'll that. But uh, one of my creative writing students remarked about her stories just the other day. I have trouble with endings, so I thought we could talk a little bit about endings. Jim, your stories and novels don't usually end in a Joycean epiphany, but instead in mid-catastrophe. In your, the story, your fate hurtles down on you and Avalanche is about to sweep Avalanche researchers away. In Project X, the novel, one of the two boys who have planned a Columbine-style shooting at their school assembly watches his partner open fire and get taken down while he hesitates and is subdued physically, but in his heart he feels like he's failed once more to accomplish something. In another story, uh, Happy with Crocodiles, an American soldier in World War II believes when the Japanese soldiers, who will very soon after the battle turn over his dead body, rolled us over, they'd be shocked to see what we'd come to, shocked to see what they had done. And the Japanese soldiers seem themselves in mid-catastrophe. And those are the ends of the stories. Leah, in your novels, and with uh, kind of conciliatory gestures that seem <laughs> consciously not dramatized, uh, the rearies and the grief of others come together, I don't want to give away anything too much, come together in a ceremony, you know, uh, to at the end of the novel, and their act is uh, honoring the lost infants, and you brought it up, their brother and son, and their act is compared surprisingly but tenderly to the acts of washing up and brushing their teeth with the water of the lake where they spend their summers, the lake you referred to in, in your reading. That ending, though, is, not, is interestingly not entirely the precise ending. Um, the possible resolutions of other moments in the novels are postulated, but the omniscient narrator comes in and asks, quote, could it be that attempting to answer any of these questions might amount to arrogance, to a kind of conceit verging on blasphemy? Could there be a point beyond which it would be hubris to proceed? So my question is, <laughs> how does, how do, how does an ending shape itself for you? How did you learn to trust your endings? And how do you think about endings? Who would you like to go first, Lynn? You. Oh, how nice. <laughs> Jim. 
Um, a friend of mine, Charlie Baxter, another fiction writer, has said about me that um, he goes, "You're the kind of king of the in media race," and essentially, <laughs> That's right, and um, part of what he was referring to is the um, the interest I have in in um, mobilizing that reader's pleasure when the reader sort of figures out, "Wait, where is this headed? This can't. How is this going to work?" Um, <laughs> we have an on-rushing, often an on-rushing, very dramatic event. And the reader can feel that as a kind of narrative and thematic box and sort of thinks the, the options that I can imagine in advance. And I think as a reader, you are adjusting those options as you go along. The options I can sort of imagine in advance are not very pleasing ones. Uh, either the disaster is going to happen or it isn't. Mm -hmm. How is he going to get out of this in some ways? How is the fiction going to get out of this? How is the fiction going to surprise me while it still provides some of the pleasures I'm expecting? And one of the ways um, that I often do that is have the onrushing event clearly about to happen, but take advantage of, I guess, what Tobias Wolf calls in that story, um, Bullet in the Brain, of what he calls story time, where you just, essentially, you have absolute control of what you can do in terms of stopping consciousness, expanding consciousness, whatever. And that allows my characters very often to think forward in various directions that allows your understanding of them to enlarge at the very same moment when you've frozen what's going on in the physical world in such a way that you don't have to either have the disaster happen or have the disaster not happen. But I often, I've noticed recently that I often mobilize events that seem to put me in a very narrow box. You know, I'm writing about the Hindenburg. I wonder what's going to happen. <laughs> yes, there was a little bit of... <laughs> I wonder what's, you know, that kind of thing, right? And you, so you're sort of stuck with a certain set of events. Mm -hmm. And part of the pleasure, I think, for the reader, if there is pleasure, is sort of going, okay, well, how is this possibly going to surprise me? You know, yeah, well, there's also the dread. We know it's going to And there's the dread, right? <laughs> I, you know, I, uh, having grown up with that kind of cheesy televised version, you know, that Twilight Zone thing where the family's going up the gangplank to get on a happy ocean liner and they go past the ocean, you know, the... the Life preserver, and it says Titanic. And yeah. You're like, oh, oh, oh. You know, that kind of thing. I always like that kind of cheese ball thing. So I'm trying to recreate it. I think the difference in the endings you described is it sounds like Leia is a very deeply mature and spiritual woman, <laughs> and I'm a 10 year old boy. I mean, I think that's the difference we're describing. Well, I think one difference I'm hearing, and I love that, um, you know, I love uh, Charles Baxter's. I guess what he said about your endings, the idea of ending um, in media race, because in fact, I mean, endings are arbitrary and artificial. Mm -hmm. There's no, it's like, where do you, as our beginnings, where do you plunk down the frame? Um, and so uh, where I think we, we part company is I, my endings are rarely dramatic. In fact, my books are rarely dramatic to the point that my mom was reading this last <laughs> one. Um, she was about three quarters of the way through it, and we were on the phone with each other, and she said, I just want you to know I'm reading your book. I'm really enjoying it. I'm near the end. I can't wait to see what happens. And then there was this little pause, and she said, I mean, knowing you, nothing might happen. I <laughs> Which she meant kindly. Which is um, a lovely thing. <laughs> but... Um, but similarly, so, so there's less drama with my endings, but I, you know, a, a, as you point out in The Grief of Others, there's this sense of the omniscient narrator does um, make reference explicitly to the artificiality of knowing what happens beyond the end. I, I got a lot of grief from readers 
um, over the ending of another novel, A Heart You Bully You Punk, where it ends with the protagonist walking out. It seems to be that she's choosing not to have a relationship with someone. And as I've pointed out, ceaselessly over the years to readers who complain she does exit through a revolving door. So read into that what you will. Oh, sorry. Um, but, um, but yeah, so I mean, I, I think maybe we share that sense of, you know, well, you know what's going to happen in one sense, but there's this sure. arbitrary kind of artifice to where you place it. The well, also line. it sounds like both of you, in your separate ways, kind of just hold up that moment a little bit. You know, like you said, you know it's coming. Right. And in fact, in your, the grief of others, it, it's kind of come. There's been a sort of closure to the main line of the book. But then there's this sort of really interesting rhetorical questions, like I read, that they're kind of fanned out in a way. You know, oh, we could do this, it, we could do that. And it's kind of the same sort of moment that, that waves up there. Yeah. And the guy's thinking, hmm, I could actually talk to my wife one more time and say thanks. I guess yeah. it also depends whether you're imagining endings in terms of narrative event. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or, Absolutely. I mean, I think we're both very much on the same page in terms of imagining endings as expanding consciousnesses mm -hmm. and, and expanding um, like sort of understanding of emotion, mm -hmm. right? And so. We'll hold up event forever to do that, and yeah. that's really the main agenda of the fiction at the end. And that's it's what you're not, talking about the story time. Also. Yeah, um, and and in order to do that, I think fiction readers, because they've come to fiction partially, if not centrally, for that pleasure, will say, "Oh, absolutely, stop the plane right here and tell me what's going on in this person's heart." Yeah. Right? I don't need the, you know, um, I don't need the rest of it necessarily, but I do need to know that additional insight into what's going on in the heart. If I don't get that. Uh, that it has just been drama, right? Again, I was going to just repeat again. How did you learn to trust your endings? That you get a feel for those endings. You know, because I mean, a lot of times, you know, when you finish a story, it's like the ending's all there, but it's like where are you going to cut it exactly? <laughs> you know, it may be a couple sentences before what you thought was going to be the end, and and it just becomes this kind of interesting way of calling it. Mm -hmm. Well, I have a tendency to overwrite, and so I think I've learned cutting is always good with me, you know, stopping. I over-talk, too. <laughs> you know, I'm always, my, my kids are always telling me, you know, we got it, Mom, we got it. And I'm still going on wanting to explain a little bit more, just one more way that I could get my point across. So, so part of it, I think, is learning to shut up sooner. And then... And then I also heard in your question, you know, you said, how do you learn to trust your endings? But I also just heard, how do you learn to trust? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Speaking of cutting it off earlier. And, and for me, a huge thing there has been um, really uh, coming to have faith in my um, insignificance. <laughs> and, you know, I think when you really trust and believe in your own insignificance, it's much easier to let go and not be so precious about, hmm. about things. Yeah, insignificance is something I've been able to embrace for years. <laughs> <laughs> it's effortless where I come from. <laughs> oh, one thing I like is with Jen's endings is there's like there's the most uncanny thing. There's a first-person narrator but in the present tense, so it's not a retrospective narrator, mm -hmm. and they're narrating right into death. You know? And it's sort of like, well, how did this person yeah. tell me that story? Yeah, the logic of some of these things doesn't yeah, always yeah, work peculiar. the way you might expect. In fact, I, that, that last thing um, we just did, like a week ago at Symphony Space in Manhattan, and then there was a Q&A afterwards, <laughs> and this man said, 
How does he know all that stuff if he's in 1600? And I go, wow, you've seen through my tissue of lies. Because <laughs> it was great. He had interrogated this, and he'd gone, the logic of this narration has a, there's a flaw in it. All right, so on to my yeah, right. I thought and, it was interesting, uh, but apparently. I wanted to bring in uh, and just talk a little bit about some of Leah's nonfiction. Um, so both of you have brought research into your work, Leah, mostly in your nonfiction. In Glass Paper Beans, for example, you trace how the staples we take for granted every day, the coffee beans from which our coffee is brewed, the paper pulp from, of which our newspaper is made, and the glass from which our mug is, our, our mug is uh, shaped. Uh, excuse me, arrive after a journey from Ohio, Canada, and Mexico after being produced by particular hardworking people whose portraits she paints so particularly in, uh, for example, in Without Apology, Girls, Women, and the Desire to Fight, you not only follow four young women boxers as they train for the ring, you yourself enter the ring to spar with the girls and begin to get a, as you say, a, a, a feel for your own reach. Uh, so again, a terrific amount of research, but in the nonfiction category, and you don't seem to do that so much in your fiction. So I'm going to question you a minute. And with Jim, with your, when your stories and novels, the reader, as we see, learns a lot of historical, technical, and scientific facts. The Avalanche story learned a lot about snow crystals um, and how they uh, form an unstable base for the other layers above. In uh, uh, called depth whore or swim snow. In Gojira, King of the Monsters, we learn how Suburaya, the special effects director of Gojira, which is later adulterated by Americans, and uh, this movie, Japanese movie, is adulterated by Americans into Godzilla, King of the Monsters. How the special effects man, uh, sort of protagonist of the story, constructs the monster which has a Tyrannosaurus's head and Iguanodon's body, an easier fit for the stuntsman's requirement in terms of operating the suit. And they also add a stegosaurus uh, back plates so it doesn't look like any recognized recorded species. But what strikes me about both of your work, Leo in nonfiction and, and Jim in fiction, is this kind of need to embody the research. Uh, Leo by tracking down and making visible the people who make things, who pursue this, the hard sport of boxing. And Jim by creating characters who variously work on Zeppelins, climb Everest, film horror movies. Uh, <laughs> You sound like you're bored uh, as you're going along. These <laughs> characters are often first-person narrators. Uh, you know, like I said, straight, narrate their right. stories straight into death. So I was really interested in how research figures into your work. Uh, how do you both in your own ways maintain the balance between rich information and compelling story? And Lee, I was really interested if you ever thought of like something like a historical novel <laughs> or you know something that really did the sort of crossed that boundary because we had a Francisco Goldman here a while ago and he wrote this fantastic novel called Say Her Name yeah. which is so close to an autobiographical to a memoir but he made a great distinction because we asked the inevitable question you know why did you call it a novel and not a memoir it was about losing his wife <clears throat> and he said that he had spent so much time as a journalist that he just could not ever adulterate any facts, mm -hmm. <laughs> and that he wanted in the novel to take some of those autobiographical you know, material, but shape it more, play with it more, extend it more, elaborate more on it, you know, put some fiction into it. But I was so struck by how clear he was, it was just, it will go so against the grain <laughs> mm -hmm. to merge those things in a funny way. Yeah. Um... 
So in the car on the way here, I was listening to you. I caught a little bit on the radio of um, an interview with John Degata and oh, yes, Jim, I was about that, yes. Jim Terrible. I can't remember the fact checker's <laughs> last name. So I don't know if you're aware of this new book out, yes, Anatomy of a Fact, um, which really, I mean, I'm fascinated by the book, the coverage of the book, reactions to the book, it sort of makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. And I should say, I, I went to journalism school yes. and, and come from that background as well. And I can appreciate Francisco Goldman saying that he would never play fast and loose. I, I guess that's um, a subjective way of putting it, but play fast and loose with that line. I think there are really interesting things you can do with nonfiction and with fiction. And I think there is a way you can do it without ever attempting to manipulate or pull the wool over the eyes of your reader. You know, you can be clear about your methodology and not break trust. Um, so I, I, I'm sitting on the edge of my seat. Um, and, I, and I have, so I'm a, it, it's fun listening actually, Jim, to your work and thinking, wow, you are a research junkie. Like, you must just <laughs> love inhaling stuff, you know, cool facts and knowledge and, and I, I like that I respond to that in fiction and I do I've used that in fiction but it's um, less apparent yes, I think yes. um, but for my first novel there was a scene where there was a, a house fire and kids had been playing this game with trying to balance eggs on end like you're supposed to be able to do on the equinox but it's a myth anyway <laughs> and in the book I wanted to have um, I wanted to describe what happened you know that later when they went back in to clean up after the fire that they were scraping the congealed eggs off the stove and, and I was I was fresh out of journalism school and I thought I know I'll do research you know and I went into the kitchen and put an egg on the gas burner and turned it on and I wanted to know if it would explode and um, so it so to me, there's a, a really vital place for research and reporting in fiction as well as nonfiction. Um, and I realize this isn't exactly your question, but since I brought it up, I'll also say that for me, I think there are as, as cool as the porous boundary between the genres is, and I do think there's such a thing as a porous boundary. I also think there, um, there is um, a responsibility on the part of the practitioner, if you will, um, to be straight with the reader about what exactly you're practicing. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think I would agree with that. Um, in terms of why and how we come to this kind of stuff, I mean, there's a number of things going on. One is that you're just a kind of hopeless nerd that finds this interesting, yes, right? So you're taking, my, my, my wife has said about me that I'm the kind of person who would I'm the only person she knows who would take a history of the guillotine to the beach. <laughs> um, but there's also, I think, another thing going on, too, and that is um, I'm trying to engage the world more fully and thereby in, in, uh, educate myself as I do so. I'm trying to enlarge the arena of my own autobiographical obsession so I don't have to keep writing about psychotic Italian mothers in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Um, Bridgeport is also one of the It same. comes up a lot, yeah. Um, <laughs> And I also um, have figured out a long time ago that um, because it's difficult to write about complicated emotional issues and because I'm a guy, which compounds things <laughs> on top of that, it helps me to trick myself into these subjects. So when I'm sitting down at a desk, I'm not often sitting down at a desk going, all right, it's time to wrestle with difficult emotional issues. <laughs> often what I'm doing is going, 
cool, I get to write about the biggest volcanic eruption in the history of man. That's what I'm writing about. But of course, in order to write literature about it, as opposed to something that only a 10-year-old would, would find appealing, I have to figure out some way in which this connects to human emotions in a really fundamental way. I have to sort of say to myself, why would this be interesting to anybody else? Why is this staying with you as an affective sort of resonance, as opposed to just, well, what a cool thing? Because right? there's a gazillion cool things. But I read about one thing, and I go, oh, that was interesting. And then I read about another, and it, and it, and it, it doesn't leave my imagination. And that's not because I recognize some superior narrative interest to it. It's because there's something in the affects that it's stirring up that's, that's snagging on me. And so then it becomes a way of doing my own emotional archaeology, I think, as opposed to just I'm having fun with the subject. You know? But hopefully both tracks are going at once. Hey, I'm going to ask this one, last question really uh, quickly, and then uh, people join in. Families seem, both seem at the core of much of your work. Uh, for Leah, the family, or extended family, other people sort of satellite to the family, seems to have an idyllic phase from which it falls almost in an idyllic sense into separateness. And the task seems to be to try to get back that connection and or forge it with others. For Jim, families seem afflicted by either the father's distance and sometimes the mother's holding himself back from his family, often by being engrossed in research or in adventure, or by a terrible dysfunction in the family. I think these were a lot of these are these Connecticut stories. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, most vividly portrayed in what struck me is just this just many scenes of this physical brutality between brothers um, that was just really rough, but also very effective, because it came out of a lot of complicated <coughs> affections. So what feels so endangered about the family these days? Wow, that was not the question you were <laughs> It's like, after all that, so what's up with Beirut? <laughs> so what feels so endangered about the families? Yeah, I sort of just had a feeling like there was just, in several in your novels, there's the, the father and then the, um, the father of that other family that uh, in um, the first novel. Not house lights, but... Uh, um, I, I know, they all start with H. Yeah. <laughs> uh, heat lightning. Yeah, yeah, heat lightning. There's a father of another family who right. yeah, yeah. very close to these two young girls and their aunt, and he does something inappropriate. But also his own family, the, you know, the narrator discovers, is really in rough shape. And part of it's about sort of doing that and, and finding that. And, uh, you know, with Ricky and John, there's these infidelities of various sorts. Uh, and it feels like there's so much, and there's this daughter who's from another, you know, relationship. There's you know, some other characters going around that need to be sort of pulled back and talking to each other again. And the other novel, House Lights, too. Again, there's this kind of idyllic family that then falls apart, and the main character has to kind of negotiate back to that. Yeah, you know, I, it, hearing you use the word idyllic, it makes me think that maybe for me, there's this tension between the idyllic and then the monstrous. Um, and really, I don't believe in that there are these poles. I believe most families, most communities, most individuals, all individuals, we have within us um, you know, a lot of, of goodness and um, potential to grow and connect. And we all have within us the potential to be horrible and hateful and small and monstrous. And so I think both within um, 
the communities and families that I've written about and within individual characters, I think sometimes I'm, I'm looking to um, close the gap between this idea of poles and, and sort of find, um, um, you know, to sort of integrate these, these different capabilities that we all have and we all enact at times um, and, and find a way to sort of, again, it's that idea almost of, you know, um, making the unfathomable fathomable, you know, that um, normalizing the extremes of human behavior or finding a way where they, they um, come together. Mm -hmm. yeah, that seems like a nice way of it. Um, we have, you know, for most of us, family is at one point or another the only shelter we have. And so the idea that it's in any kind of dysfunctional state is, is usually pretty terrifying. Um, so it, it, I'm trying to think of many writers where you think, well, at least a family is conflict-free, <laughs> you know, um, so that even families that seem to me when I read about these families or talk to friends about these families, it seemed to me like the Waltons on Quaaludes or something, you know, where you're like, oh, hey, good night, good night, and even they turn out to be very fraught within those dynamics. They feel like, oh my God, why didn't Be Betty Lou say good night with a bigger smile, you know, and they just, whereas in my family, you know, the old Woody Allen line, you know, we would exchange in gunfire daily, so the conflict was very easy to, you know, if you're thrown down the stairs by your brother, you have a, a sense of, where does conflict come from? <laughs> what shape does it take? Oh, I know. You know, that kind of thing. I think I'll go to Japan and write about the horror yeah, movies. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all thank so you much. Yeah.